0: you're listening to kill cliffs hazard
1: ground podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival
0: and now here's your host mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's episode, another guest suggestion, actually from another guest who is on the Hazard Ground Podcast. We'll get to that coming up in a moment. Just our normal set of reminders to follow some of the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground and Hazard Ground Podcast. Of course, subscribe to our YouTube channel as well. And don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. You can go to our website, HazardGround.com. Click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. It redirects your rate to Amazon. You can do all of your normal Amazon shopping, especially as we get set for the holidays. This is a great way to donate to Veterans Charities because we get a percentage of what you guys spend and then we donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities you've heard featured here on the hazard ground also works from your smartphone it'll redirect you right to the app so it'll keep all your credit card information saved and everything very very convenient very very easy as well don't forget to leave us apple reviews keep them coming Uh, we're getting more and more so hopefully starting to crack that top 100, 100 apple podcasts. we need your help to do it doesn't have to be a lengthy review just give us five stars Tell us why you love the show. As well, download the Kill Cliff TV app. You can check us out there. All of our episodes are on the Kill Cliff TV app. Don't forget KillCliff.com for the best CBD and clean energy drinks around. I'm a huge supporter of Kill Cliff. Uh, I've been drinking Kill Cliff drinks for years now. Uh, they are absolutely fantastic. Pre-workout, post-workout, some of the best energy drinks and clean energy drinks around. None of the sugar and all the other crap that you get from some of those other brands, but Kill Cliff is the way to go. So again, KillCliff.com to order all of your clean energy drinks. All right, uh, this week's guest is a former Army Warrant Officer and a Kiowa pilot who spent 12 years in the Army, both in the National Guard and on active duty. He has two deployments to Afghanistan, and after separating from the military, he went on to be an airline pilot. You can check him out online at scoutsoutbook.com. He is Ryan Robichet, joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Ryan, welcome and thank you for being here. Hey, it's great to be here. Appreciate it. Uh, you are a guest suggestion from our good friend Curtis Grace all the way back in Hazard Ground episode 233. So check out Curtis as well. But uh, we, we love getting guest suggestions, man. It's great that uh, uh, that our guests are willing to offer up their friends and everything. What is your relationship with Curtis? Uh,
1: we actually kind of stumbled into each other online because I had posted a picture of the Panjway district where he had fought, and he actually saw that on, on Instagram and kind of threw out a, Hey, that looks kind of familiar. So we started just kind of chatting and over time over the last couple of months, you know, we've just shared stories, shared ideas. And yeah, he's a really cool dude. It was, it was a lot of fun being on a show.
0: Yeah. The Pansway podcast. Uh, those guys were great to us and we certainly enjoyed having them on and uh, always a great podcast to check out. Um, and you can also hear more about Ryan's story there as well, but, uh, you went, took a little bit of a non-traditional route. You actually enlisted in the guard first and then ended up on active duty. Usually people do it like I do. You go to active duty and then you're like, Hey, I need to downsize, you know, and I'll go to the national guard afterwards. So how, and where does your army story begin? So that
1: was, uh, yeah, that was kind of due to college. So I basically, uh, you know, nine 11 occurred when I was a high school senior, uh, so I decided that I wanted to join the military. Uh, right after that event, I joined during my freshman year of college. So that's how I got into that. So I started in Louisiana National Guard as a medic, uh, then transferred over to the Arkansas National Guard later on. But upon graduation from college, that's when I rolled over to active duty and went to warrant officer school.
0: So was it just, I mean, obviously, enlisting in the Guard helped you pay for college, correct? I'm assuming that was part of the reason? Yep,
1: yep. That uh that did have, you know, that had something to do with it. I was I was fortunate, you know, my my father had definitely, you know, saved for college, been helping me out. But then he was like, Hey, cool, Dharm's gonna, you know, do it. That's great. <laughs> <laughs>
0: hey, listen, don't knock it. It's, it's it's how I got here, you know? Uh yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I, I remember joking and I was on active duty pre nine eleven, um, but I remember uh you know, people always ask how you got in the army It's like, "Hey, I just wanted to pay for college. And I remember I walked into a morning <laughs> meeting. It was like 545 in the morning. I was just tired, irritable. And I was a real wise ass second lieutenant. I probably wasn't the most model two LT in the world, but i remember being pissed. And I walked into the meeting and I slammed my notebook down on the thing and, and sat down at the table. just was being all grumpy. And one of the NCOs said, uh, morning, sir. Problem? I said, I should have taken out a freaking loan. You know, uh, instead of paying instead of using ROTC to pay for college. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, I digress. It's worked out better for me um, and and the Army, for that matter, uh, after all. It's a a great I mean, that's
1: definitely a great deal. There's a lot of people, you know, that that get to use that. And it's
0: yeah. it's, it's It's weird. You know, just side note, tangentially, like there should be no stigma with people who use the military for an education or as a stepping stone to something else that they want to do. There's nothing wrong with that. Like, it's totally okay. I don't know right. why anybody would look at it any different than any other job. I mean, you get skills, you get training, you get validity, you get, you know, uh, uh, a sense of, you know, uh, I, I guess, you know, validity in the workplace, in the civilian workplace, because you spend time in uniform. Like, uh, nobody should ever chide anybody for using the military as a springboard to something else. Not everybody's meant to do 20 years and, and, and more. Right.
1: Yeah, that's very true.
0: So strange. But anyway, we, we digress. So um, once you graduate college, what was sort of the catalyst for going straight to active duty? Because I'm sure there might have been opportunities and things at your disposal.
1: There were. Um, I, I had a brother that was over in Iraq in uh, 2004. And just hearing his, his stories and kind of talking to him uh, during that time, you know, I, I recognized that it was getting pretty bad over there. Um, I had originally been figuring, well, you know, as a medic, maybe I can go over there in that capacity. Like that will, you know, that'll work out. That'll be helpful. Uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, I never actually deployed during my um, guard time, just the way the units that I was in, the way it laid out, I was actually able to complete college. Unlike a lot of my peers who actually deployed, and they were trying to come back and go like, roll right into college classes, which I know that that was just very difficult on them. Uh, just that that transition from combat mindset to just all of a sudden they're back on campus. So uh, that that did not happen for me, but um, I just recall, you know, as he was over there and fighting and and I was learning more about his unit, he was a infantry platoon commander in Atomia, like the worst neighborhood in Baghdad in 04. So he was just getting mm-hmm. blown up, firefights, craziness. So, and I just, I wanted to... It, just get involved. Like I just had this drive to, to get in there. Um, and you know, I was in the flight program and was already flying and, and it just kind of started to, to coast that way that I was like, well, you know, maybe I can do this from the air. Maybe I can actually, you know, go, go through warrant officer school and flight school and actually do this, you know, that way.
0: But what was the transition? You just mentioned you were in flight school. You went from medic to going into flight school. Why and, and how? So when I graduated college, uh, the warrant officer
1: flight training program—it was a whole packet. So gotcha. basically, you know, it was once once I graduated from college, which you actually don't even have to have a degree to become a warrant officer. It just kind of lined up for me that way don't tell anybody <laughs> it's very true well i mean and we had you know we had some of the most intelligent dudes i've ever met you know and i figured this guy's probably got a master's of phd and then i find out they're like no nah, i did like two semesters at wherever <laughs> like what <laughs> but uh yeah so but it just the way it lined up for me you know i graduated and it was it was pretty quickly after graduation that my my flight training packet and warrant officer packet all got accepted so i just i roll you know, very quickly right into it.
0: So how long does the warrant officer program take for you? I mean, you're doing it all active duty, so I assume it's all stacked right right back and forth with each other.
1: It was, the, so the whole program was, uh, warrant officer school was either four weeks or six weeks, depending on how much uh, previous time you had. Were you a Sergeant NCO, whatever, before? Um, and then you rolled into the various stages of flight school, which there are several Um, so you're at Fort Rucker and when I was there, there was a gigantic bubble, uh, training bubble. So like 2006, seven, eight, I mean, you were there for dang near two years in a lot of cases and which was absolutely my case. I was at Rucker for close to two years, uh, doing all the various, uh, training Mm and
0: all that. So you, for those who aren't aware with the flight program, you, you try or you choose or ask for a specialty of which, you know, aircraft you want. Um, how, how did you end up with the one that you got and was it what you wanted? So
1: they, they did it at least during my time. It was after you got through a certain point, Mm -hmm. it was on a graded system. So they would pull you in, um, let's say with a room of 30 people and whoever had the highest academic standing of that group got the first pick. And they literally went up to a whiteboard and wrote all four army aircraft available at the time with a tick mark next to them. So that, you know, Kiowa six Apache 12. And then they literally just went down the list and they're like, okay, they got, I had a pretty good academic standing. So when they got to me, um, I had already spoken to my brothers, spoken to other infantry guys and learned more about the Kiowa and its mission. So that was a pretty easy choice by the time I arrived to that point. And there was actually a Kiowa slot. So I was like, yes, absolutely. I'll take it.
0: And why, what about that
1: aircraft attracted you to it? The mission. So there's there's a big there's a big uh, piece of wisdom that I received that I'm so thankful for. And it was pick the mission, not the aircraft. So the mission of the Kiowa, the reconnaissance, the close air support. I mean, you're just you are so low, fast, right there with the infantry guys, right there with the convoys. Literally, your skids are as high as the roof of the vehicle, you know, and that's I wanted to be in that part of the battle. So I didn't, I didn't really want to be in a Black Hawk moving supplies. I didn't necessarily even want to be in the Apache. I just, I really, really wanted that mission.
0: So once you get that, what path does your, you know, uh, your schooling go to and how quickly and how long does it take? Cause each, each aircraft has different levels of schooling, correct?
1: Yep. I don't recall the, I mean, I don't think the Kiowa course was any longer, any shorter than the rest. Um, it may have been a little longer just due to you have weapons, you have to learn how to shoot. There's additional, the reconnaissance stuff, um, learning to fly, you know, in the helicopter, the right seater is the primary guy flying. And the left seater is the backup and work systems and things contrary to an airplane, which is the opposite way. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so the left seat skills was actually something you had to go through and train because there were so many things that the left seater in a Kiowa needed to be able to do to support the pilot flying and the mission on the ground. So that itself was kind of, you know, a longer process to get to, to really be able to work in the aircraft as well as work on the battle going on outside the aircraft.
0: After you finish flight school, you're headed to where next?
1: After flight school, I got orders to Savannah. So I went to uh, 317 CAV in Savannah Um, you know, third infantry division, all that kind of good stuff. But we were very fortunate, uh, that we were hunter army airfield is downtown Savannah and it's nice and far away from Fort Stewart. I did not go over there very often. (laughs) I hated going over to Fort Stewart. So I avoided that place. Like our commander, Hey, we need three guys to go to Fort Stewart. Everybody's like, Oh
0: shit. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. Don't listen. I, I understand it. I've been to Fort Stewart more than I I, I can recollect and, uh, Yeah, it's not Savannah. Um, They try to tell you it is, but it's not. Uh, Hinesville is a nice place in Georgia. I'll just say that much. Very quaint. Um, All right. So you get down there, down there at Fort Stewart, and this is what month and year?
1: Uh, So that would have been, let me think here. So graduate Walks got there. So that would have been in early 2009 because I deployed. So it was like late 2008, early 2009, because I was not in the unit but a year or less, I think it was even a little less than a year before I was actually no kidding, like standing on a, you know, nice patch of ground
0: in Afghanistan. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask you how quickly you got there. So it's a, it's a very short turnaround.
1: Yep. It was, uh, you know, I got to the unit signed in, um, and I was thrown into the training pretty quickly. Um, they had, they had actually transferred from up in Fort drum. So they were just getting their, their, um, everything kind of settled from that transition, even though it'd been a little while, it was still, you know, I was getting in basically when they were like, yep, we're about to deploy. Get ready. So it was it was definitely a okay,
0: you know, there no no games here. It's time to get flying. I, I assume that's what excited you because this is what you were asking for the whole time?
1: It was, you know, it was it was kind of one of those oh wow moments. You know, I'm in my, you know, early twenties and it's it's kind of it hits you. You're like all right, this is happening. I, I signed up for this, and, and here we go. You know, we had some mentors in the in our unit that had multiple deployments. Um, not a lot of people that had done Afghanistan. In fact, I think it was it was bulk majority of everybody there had had done in Iraq or two. But uh, Afghanistan was kind of the new ball game
0: for us. When you uh, find out that you're going. To Afghanistan. Any concerns? Like uh is this more excitement than nervousness? I was young and dumb. So yeah, I was just like, <laughs> let's do this. You know, I
1: wasn't I was not very uh I I wasn't it wasn't keeping me up at night. I was not worried. It was more of like, you know, doing push-ups and just like, yeah. <laughs> you know? we we're we we're pretty ready. And you know, we've been trained that way and just, you know, I don't know. I, I wasn't uh I had no reservations on that one.
0: Well, I mean, the expectation of what is and and when you get there, obviously, are two different things. So what was the what was the delta, so to speak? (laughs) So when you know, when you get there
1: and you start seeing what your year is going to look like, because it was a straight year. So my first deployment was Bagram, Afghanistan, you know, right there north of the uh, capital of Kabul our our sector that we were generally operating in and in charge of was gigantic it was very big so it was a lot to learn Uh, so there was there was more of the the oh wow moment like we are responsible for such a large battle space there are so many units out here there's there's foreigners out here i never even considered working with you know the french and things like that so it was it was a lot to take in. I don't know what I really expected, but it was it was different than I think what
0: my what my brain had been telling me it was going to be. Did they explain to you kind of what your mission set is when you get there?
1: They did. Uh, the unit we were replacing did a pretty good job of of showing us. You know, here's what we've experienced. Here's here's some areas. These villages. Watch these guys over here. That sort of thing. So um, the, the trade of information was good. Uh, we were actually assigned under a general aviation support battalion. They're Blackhawks. So they didn't quite know what to do with us. So it, it was kind of a, a blessing and a curse in some ways. Uh, we, we actually were able to, we were a very small troop as well. Uh, we we're probably, you know, almost half the size of, of a normal troop, it was a very, very small pilot group and and maintainers. Uh, We've been pieced together from across 317 CAV to be in this special area. And so it was kind of the get to know each other, get, get to know the battle space. And the, unfortunately, they really didn't know much of what to do with us. So there was also a lot of self-led mission. We'd get deliberate missions and things like that, that would come down the pike. We need you to escort this convoy or, you know, a medevac going to be going here, troops in contact over there. But in some cases, we were basically told we were on quick reaction force. We had a 12-hour shift. You need to fly two bags of gas, which is essentially about four or so hours of flight during that 12-hour shift. And other than that, it was up to us. So we learned to really get out there and be extremely autonomous. And we called it looking for work. We would just, you know, how do you How do you want to play it today? Hey, let's go. Let's go check on the French down in the Tagab Valley. We haven't been over there in a day or two. Let's go see what's going on there. So it was it was very unique, I think, in that aspect that we we did not have as many eyes looking over our shoulder uh, that that I expected.
0: When you go through all these training flights repeatedly uh, and, you know, you simulate everything. Talked about that gap before. It, the gap is always there for your for your first time in combat. We're in combat in general. So, what do you remember most about your first flight in combat? I mean, um, yeah, as I said, the first
1: flight was you know it was just awesome just getting out there. You know, just kind of passing through the wire because was, I was pulling my hair out in Bagram for for a while, just trying, cause I was a new guy. So I'm low, I'm the low man on the totem pole. Cause they they've still got to do training stuff with me. So we had to get our experienced dudes up to speed. So, I mean, I had a lot of sitting around and, and anxious rocking <laughs> until it was my turn. Right. But, uh, but yeah, one of the, I don't know if it was my technically my very first dose of combat, but one of the ones that really sticks out was it was, it was pretty early on. And we had an IED hit one of the trucks that that was out there close by us, and uh, that was that was the big oh wow moment. You know, you see Americans getting pulled out of a vehicle that just got trashed by an IED and getting laid in the road, and that was that's when it gets real, really, really fast.
0: So. Um, well, I, I mean, give me more on that, just because you know. Uh, this is somebody who was all gung ho to go into battle. This is somebody who was r- actually racing towards these sort of moments. Um, when you're living in them, and, and you might not have done it at the time, but maybe afterwards, kind of did any of your perspective change?
1: It did, and unfortunately, in that particular event, it would. I, I was actually pretty mad about it because when this occurred. We had the Air Force pararescue guys, the PJ's, kind of their their special forces group, if you mm-hmm. will, and their whole job is to pull wounded people off the battlefield or, or isolated personnel and stuff like that. And so they were actually in the air, and we had communications, and they're a Blackhawk full of medics. So you know, okay, let's let's get these guys over here. You know, let's get a landing zone for them. Let's get them out so they can so they can get our guys you know out of the situation, our wounded. And as they were coming in. On their approach, they suddenly waved off and flew away. And we were in shock and angry. Where are you guys going? What the hell? What are you doing? And that's when we were told this is, we were told not to intervene. This is an army affair. The army is launching the army's assets. And that was the first real dose of, wow, you know, we're going to let the politics of inter-service rivalries or incongruent procedures actually like leave these dudes bleeding and that was that was a real hard so one of my first was was really uh of of like shock in that in that space like i can't believe that just happened so we just had to you know set our jaws there's nothing we could do other than well let's get the medevac in then how far out is he you know but i just had to sit there and watch and being a prior medic i was also extremely upset and frustrated because i was like you know Bucket. let's just land. I, I can go stabilize. Let me go help. And, you know, everybody's like, no, unwise, you know, you're here now, this is your job. We have to provide cover. So there was so much going on in that. And that was kind of one of my first memories because there was just, there were so many pieces of that puzzle that just didn't feel right.
0: That's incredible. Um, I I wonder, does your perspective overall change after this? Does Does it feel like mission taint is not the right word does it feel like missions are less out of your control in some way shape or form
1: um i mean i never really felt like we were always in complete control because we would we would there's always somebody you know over you with their with their hand in the cookie jar and what's going to happen you know so you're always you're always having to mother may i it just it actually did worsen as time went on when i thought things may get better so? Uh, so as, as far as like the rules of engagement, for instance, mm-hmm. I know, you know, talking to guys who've been in Iraq, you know, we'd be in situations that, that I was like, okay, you know, we're going to get clearance to fire. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And these, and they were frustrated and they would vent you know, like, you know, back in Iraq, this guy'd be dead right now. Like right now, this would be over, you know, and, and that just continually. And I, and then even for me, I got to see that and experience that over time. It felt like there was more restrictions, more more overwatch, you know, as as our time went on. So that was in itself kind of frustrating. And those those are the things I think that would would keep us up more than the actual combat itself. It's when we couldn't engage. It's when we had to let a bad guy go. That's those are the things I think that that upset our generation of soldier, if you will, from everybody I've talked to, infantry to pilot. That, that seems to be kind of the curse of the OIF, OEF veteran is that, that rules of engagement and that constant battle of, you know, I want to do this, I want to do my job, and then you're not able to.
0: Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, obviously, again, very, very frustrating. I certainly understand, you know, all of that. Um, I wonder, though, for the times that you did were able to engage Um, was that sort of the fulfillment that you were looking for when you took this job?
1: Uh, when I wasn't able to, engage, no, when you were able to engage. Oh, I mean, yes, because then I felt like I'm actually supporting, you know, almost, almost an extension of if this was my brother's platoon on the ground, you know, I I would think about that a lot. Like, what if this was my brother and his guys, what if, you know, these dudes on the ground right now are him and they're under contact and so when we would get to engage then yes absolutely you know because we we loved the ground guys the guys we supported were everything to us we put ourselves in danger all the time anything we could do to protect and save those guys that's all we cared about so anytime i was able to actually and get in there and help which again you know it was it was frequent at first and then that diminished over time but yes i mean that was that was the biggest high ever was to, you know, stop something bad from happening. And, and you could hear the relief in the, and the radio operator's voice. Yeah. Thank you guys. You know, yep. They stopped shooting. They're, they're no longer in the area, whatever it may be, or they're dead. <laughs> whatever it is, you know, it's just like, okay, cool. You know, we, we, we did our job, we helped. And like that, those were the real rewarding days. That's, that's when I, you know, I'd get a little piece of pie from the chow
0: hall or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um when you fire that first round on a target um you know we we talk all the time on the podcast about you know how it changes you um you're never the same again when you come back from combat for that reason alone um, right what was that experience like for you um
1: it it never really it wasn't bothering me very much it, i think i just had in my mind like this is going to happen. And then when it did, it did, you know, because again, I'd be so frustrated with whatever the situation was when it got to that point. You know, if it was Americans, if it was French, it, it didn't matter to me. And, you know, if, if I was taking bad guys off the battlefield, that's, that's perfect. That's why we should be there. Uh, so I don't, I don't really think it was uh, it wasn't upsetting me in any big way it probably made me grow up a lot I know I matured like crazy I probably aged like five years plus in that deployment (laughs) but you know it's the gray hairs at my temples when I was coming home like
0: son of a bitch (laughs) that's crazy uh so when you get out of that deployment and you, you come back home um do you feel like you were able to accomplish everything you wanted to absolutely not the
1: when I between the deployments was actually a really bad time for me um and, and there was a multitude of reasons for that. But I I just I remember it just there were so many frustrations I had with how we were utilized or how we weren't utilized. And could we have done better? And, and a lot of those situations and those battles and those, you know, those failed attempts that we may have had. Uh, those are the things that kind of haunted me. And, and that was that was a very difficult time. Uh, you know, I'd broken up with my girlfriend. I was alone in this big ass house that I bought there in Savannah. And,
0: you know, it just kind of, yeah, it was, it was a tough time. That was definitely difficult. Is that part of the reason why you wanted to go back or just happened again?
1: Uh, It ended up being both. Uh, You know, I knew we were going to go back. I figured it was going to happen. But the, the garrison army was actually (laughs) was actually bad enough that I was like, I just wanted to play again. This is horrible. <laughs> it had gotten, it had gotten really bad. We we were losing a lot of our cavalry traditions. They were restricting the wear of our Stetsons. And, you know, I'm in the motor pool picking weeds under Humvees like, well, Afghanistan's better than this. You know, I, I may as well go back over and help ground guys. Cause this is terrible too. So I was, I was more keyed in to, I got kind of addicted to trying to find bad guys. I, I wanted to hunt the enemy. And so that, that ended up being a big driver. I was like, yes. Okay. You know, I, by the, by the time that two years between the deployments was up when they're like, we are going back, it will be Kandahar. You know, I, I pretty much settled on, I want to get out of the army, but I was not upset about deploying again. I was, well, if this is how I'm going to finish my army time, at least it's going to be doing something to help our, our guys.
0: When you get to Afghanistan the second time, uh, I assume similar mission set, just different locale? It was Pandahar, 2013,
1: uh, pretty, pretty rough time around there. Uh, It was starting to sort of dwindle. Um, I know like when Curtis and Panjway podcast guys, you know, they were there around the same time or just before, um, you know, they were beginning to shut down already even then. So Afghanistan just fell apart, right? But this was in 2013 and they were already beginning, you know, okay, this Bob over here, this cop over here is about to be shut down, bulldozed or turned over to the ANA. So the Afghan National Army, Afghan National Police were starting to take the mission sets, which proved to be very challenging in, a, in its own right. But um, yeah, it was, it was a very different deployment than the first one. There was a lot more Oversight on what we were doing, where we were going, um, we were a little fatter on pilots, so we didn't have the the ability to just get hyper aware of everything in the in the battle space like we were in the first deployment. You know, I had tons of time; just absent, wait, I flew like too much. But then it was almost the opposite in Kandahar. We had just had so many pilots that it was it was a little bit more difficult in that way as well. You just weren't as familiar with, with flying out there every single day.
0: Wow. That's interesting. Um, did you feel like it was harder to stay sharp because you weren't able to fly as often?
1: Yes. Um, you know, cause when you're, when you're, when you have a group like I had in the first deployment, a straight year in the same area with, with an understaffing of pilots, we, we knew, all the units, all the towns, I knew the hotbeds, I knew every, you know, every little mountain pass when, when, even when we weren't directly supporting somebody when we're out quote unquote looking for work, you know, we were finding new routes, new valleys. Hey, in the, in the future, let's use this. If we ever have to go to this village, we can sneak up by going, Four or 5,000 feet high over here and sneaking down through this little ravine. And actually, we called it Beggar's Canyon. It was like my favorite route. <laughs> so we used little Star Wars names and we made up all these different things, but we didn't have as much of that in Kandahar. So that was, that did make it more difficult because you just didn't know it as well.
0: Amount of, Uh, I know that we were flying less, but in general, was there a lot more contact with pilots, not necessarily you, but with all of you guys, uh, the amount of times you guys would find yourself, you know, directly supporting troops in contact? Was that more often or more less than the first one?
1: There was a bunch of that. Um, I I think I recall that it was dwindling towards the end. Um, You know, it it had slowed down. Uh, That was, I believe, mostly in part to there was more of the Afghans doing the patrols and more of our people just observing and helping and advising. Uh, so, and, and again, our rules of engagement became so strict that not only were the ground guys just saying, we're not even going to patrol nearly as much, but then we ourselves were put in positions where we couldn't really support them very effectively. Even if we wanted to, Our, our helicopter is not good at a thousand foot hard deck over the action. We can't, really do what we're supposed to be doing. So there was little stuff like that, that got thrown in the mix that, that added a layer of of frustration for everybody Uh, just, and it was mostly due to, to a risk aversion, you know, they didn't want, we'd, we'd lost some helicopters, you know, some people had gotten hurt. So I think it it was a knee jerk reaction. And it just made us
0: incredibly combat effective there for a while. Combat effective or combat ineffective. Ineffective. Okay. Ineffective. Um, So this is the second time you're going through and you're experiencing this is there part of you that at the time maybe looked back at that guy who was so gung-ho to go do all this that this is sort of a waste?
1: it was starting to feel like that yeah uh, you know again the the entire mission I, I no longer believed in I did not believe in the Afghan cause I would ask what our mission statement was a bunch of us did you know why are we here what are we doing? And we would get some very vague answer or no answer at all, uh, you know, because it was very confused. Nobody really could give us a straight answer. So uh, it was, it was basically a, this is very frustrating. I don't want to be here anymore, but Curtis and those guys are over there in Sperlingar in these fields. They don't want to be here either more than likely, but I definitely don't want them getting their legs blown off today. If I have anything to do about it. So, We've just hyper-focused on them and their safety and tried to just put our feelings in a box for another day, I guess is the best way I could
0: describe it. So how does that second deployment end?
1: Um, We ended up um, pretty happy to leave. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so the, the, you know, the next, the next guys came in and we were just like, enjoy this. <laughs> See you later. So we, we, you know, gave them all the knowledge that we had, everything we'd learned, same thing, you know, where's the hotbeds? What, what can you expect? Um, you know, this area, the, especially that Horn of Panjway area, there's, there was just a lot of ied in place. There's a lot of, uh, you know, high level people that were hanging out in that area. So we just tried to transfer everything we could, but uh, yeah, you know, after, I came home. I just got married, uh, very shortly before that second deployment. So I kind of had something to look forward to. It was almost like a, you know, honeymoon moment. I was coming home and, and able to, uh,
0: kind of trying to start putting it behind me, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, uh, you know, part of the, uh, transition back to normal life is, is the biggest challenge of, of <laughs> reintegration, right? Uh, and, and putting, absolutely putting all those pieces back together. Um, you know, you you had a lot of experience. Um, you know, with combat with the enemy um, was was that a tougher challenge for you than sort of getting back to normal life, or was it the other way around?
1: I'd say reintegration to normal life's the harder part, for sure. Um, I, yeah, I, you know, you're you're trained for one thing, but you're very undertrained and underprepared for the other. So, you know, that especially. I think when you get out, really, really, it's not even when you're not going to deploy anymore. It's when you actually have papers in hand and you're out, out. That's when, that's, that's when I think the, it's more of a disorientation. Cause at first you start out happy, right? I'm out. Yay. You know, you send a picture with your papers and like, see you later. But then you start to recognize that you had a tribe, you had a group and you're no longer there. You no longer have that built-in support network. You can still call and text buddies, but especially if they're still in, they're busy. You know they're going through a training cycle. They're going to go again. You know, they, they're they not going to have as much time for you. You're not in that club anymore. And so you can stay in touch with other veterans, people who have gotten out, but kind of life goes on. So your your support network itself is fades a lot faster, I think, than then most people realize, especially for me, you know, I was like, wow, you know, there's it's you're you're on your own now. You know, maybe you can still talk to buddies or maybe you can find a way to, to make this easier. But but it takes
0: time. Did you have a long conversation with any of your chain of command about why you got out and the reasons? Um,
1: did you want to? I don't. I did. Yeah, I did want to get out. I did. No, I mean, did you want to have that
0: conversation with them? I mean, I know you'd express frustrations over the way things were going, you know, and not necessarily your particular chain of command, but just in general. So was there a thought process that, or is there a desire to let them know that had things gone down differently, you might still have me in uniform every day?
1: Um, I guess they never really, they never really indicated that they cared enough to have that conversation. So it never occurred to me to even try, Um, I guess would be the best way for me, or at least that's how I took it. I never, you know, I never really thought to, to bring it up. And not to mention the Kiowa itself was going away. So the, every single Kiowa pilot and maintainer across the entire army at this time was getting the same boot, whether you liked it or not. So you were, your aircraft's going away. We don't know if we have a place for you. So you may be forced retired or you're going to perhaps get moved to another aircraft, but there's no guarantees. So there was this, this mental anguish of even those who dead set wanted to stay in. I know several who were kicked out because there was no place for them to go. And so the army actually lost a lot of very skilled and motivated aviators that did want to stay in. And then They when they got rid of the aircraft, they also got rid of the scout pilots. And now to my understanding, they're short on scout pilots and wonder where they all went. So
0: it's it's a cycle. (laughs) Um, When you get out, uh, do you know exactly that you want to go be a regular pilot or how do you figure this out on your own? Uh, And I knew... I knew that I could go back
1: to planes. I was fortunate that I'd gotten some airplane time before I went in. Um, I had considered the medevac community and staying with helicopters. Um, but I figured I'd give a crack at the airlines and just give it a try. And, uh, it's been, it's been fine. It has its ups and downs, especially now COVID world destroyed everything, but, uh, it's, it's been okay. So, you know, I, I was, uh, I wasn't ready for some of the things and especially being on the road and stuff like that was, was also kind of hard. I had a new baby, you know, again, you know, young family uh, to think about. So that was kind of hard being gone a lot while I was just trying to really build some hours and get my experience up. But.
0: Do you find being a regular pilot as rewarding as a, as a Kiowa pilot? (laughs)
1: <laughs> no the, the Kiowa was absolutely Kiowa, awesome yeah, yeah. uh yeah it was uh you know uh, right now I'm you know I'm flying a big old jet with lots of people and they're they're bitching about being cold or you know the, yeah. the, who knows the, the snack prices you know it's just it's such a different world and you know and now I'm kind of a customer service like I just want the people to be happy there's some turbulence okay we'll change our altitude don't want to rock you too much and like in the Kiowa you know it was absolutely you know
0: Hey, if we landed, everything's fine. <laughs> yeah. Stop bitching. Yeah. Yeah. You're here. You're so safe. When everyone placed, the aircraft didn't crash. Deal with it. Right. Yeah. So, uh,
1: you know, I, I know it just had to be, it had to be funny probably for the, some of the people I flew with watching me transition if from, cause I still just had that cavalry combat, you know, Kind of an asshole every now and then kind of whatever you know just we're very we're very sarcastic and we like crude humor and so to to adjust to the civilian life where sometimes that's not okay uh so it it
0: was an adjustment to get into that kind of customer service mindset you should uh (laughs) you should give that a go one time you know we'll be cruising at (laughs) thirty-two thousand feet and uh Listen, folks, when the plane lands, if it's still in one piece, stop complaining. Thank you. Get your bags in the alley. See you.
1: Yeah, I've I've threatened that a time or two, but I've uh, fortunately remained employed by not doing
0: that. Yeah, well, there is that. So, you know, hey, uh, everybody has a a breaking point, right? Um, So you decide to write your book, Scouts Out, um, and uh, Scouts Out, a, a, a Kiowa Warrior Pilot's Perspective of the War in Afghanistan. Um, what was the impetus for the book? Why'd you write it? And sort of what did you hope people would take from it? Well, I
1: think a lot of the frustration, too, I should have added was that what we were doing and what we were experiencing was so far removed from everything I saw and heard back home. And meanwhile, I was writing journals and I was I was keeping notes and I was writing journals, you know, accessible to friends and family back home only. So while this was all going on, rather than putting it on Facebook or sending emails, I just had a little password protected, just kind of, hey, just for those who I want to see this, this is what's really happening. Here's the pictures. Mm-hmm. Here's the stories. My grandmother had been a reporter a long, a long ways back. So she had worked on Capitol Hill, interviewed all these different government people. And she was the one who was like, no one back home knows that what what you're writing is not what they're seeing on CNN, let's say. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so um, she said, it was in between deployments. She said, I want you to publish a book. And I was like, no. <laughs> so I went on my second deployment while I was there. I'm still doing the same same process, throwing down the information. Here's here's what we're seeing. Here's what I'm feeling. She could tell I was getting more frustrated. You know, the, the climate's changed, the the pictures, the, the battles are getting a little more intense here and there. And, and I was losing the faith in the battles themselves. So as she could tell... It was upsetting. But again, she's like, you got to write this down. People need to know that this is what's happening. And she finally wore me down and made me promise that when I returned, she would help me and I would publish a book. So I agreed. Okay, yes, I will do it. She passed away about two or three weeks, maybe after that last conversation. So I promised her I was going to do it. And my roommate was sitting in the room one day. He's like, I heard that conversation with your grandmother. You know, you got to write a book, right? Yeah, I did say that. <laughs> so, <Wow. laughs> so, gotta be uh, a man of your word, right? Right. So, it has taken me seven years up until October. This, you know, like so, a couple, you know, I published it October 1st. So, yeah, so about seven years to put all those journals together, all those notes, pictures, talk to people, you know, reconstruct the whole entire thing just so I could give the most accurate account. In the moment that I could of what was happening, I didn't want to armchair quarterback it for now. And what do I feel like right now? And Afghanistan just fell apart. I didn't put any of that in there because that's not what was happening at the time. So it's literally written so that someone can go with me essentially through flight school and go through two deployments and and see those emotions as they're happening and see those pictures and and try to give somebody the, the best understanding of what we were going through as possible.
0: When you go back through those notes, um, what are one or two of the biggest stories that, you know, always resonate with you?
1: I think that that first one, when, when I realized, you know, that, that there's not always somebody who's going to rush in and save you, even when you're bleeding in the road, because it's the government and things happen. And a lot of times decisions are made above your head and, you know, it was, that, would, that rattled me a bit. Um, and even even later on, just as the Kiowa program was shut down and and how everybody was discarded, it, it was all you know that's all just still feels like a fresh wound, you know because I know I know several people who would have gone to an Apache or who would have gone to whatever, but you know they didn't. And now they're in the most uncharacteristic of jobs spread across, who knows where. And it, you know, that, that's all
0: kind of frustrating when people have read the book and they have told you about it, what stood out to them, what was their reaction to it?
1: I've had a lot of really positive feedback. They're just, they're kind of shocked, you know, They're I can't, you know, that, that was happening or like, I can't believe that, you know, that was happening at that time or, you know, the whole year of 2010, I was just doing this and I didn't even know, you know, for 12 months you were doing that, you know? So it's just, it's more of a, it's kind of a a shock. I think I've received, you know, a lot of people have, have appreciated the emotion of it um, because there is a lot of emotion in there because I was just writing what I was feeling at the time. So I think that they're, they're just more, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm just humbled by some of the reactions, you know, I've, it's, it's been a pretty, a pretty crazy road.
0: I mean, uh, why humbled? I, I know it sounds like such an obtuse question <laughs> to ask, but I mean, it's just, you know, uh, clearly you had something to say. Clearly you wrote all these things down. Uh, you live them. Um, you know, it, it, it must be going back and reading some of these things. You know, it's always weird. Cause you go back and you read some of the stuff that you went through. And it, I did the same thing. I kept a journal during my first, my first deployment and going back and rereading some of the events um, and, and things that I went through. Uh, I, I would say sometimes some of that seems worse now than it did back then. And maybe that's because we have a, a swath of experience now about what really was going on around us. Um, you know, what our bodies and minds were going through through all this and, and the years that have passed, what our bodies and minds have gone through. And so from that standpoint, um, some of this stuff didn't seem like that big of a deal back then, but it, it's probably more of a big deal now. Um, mm-hmm. but just kind of in, in that same vein, you know, uh, humbled by their reaction to it, their appreciation of it or what?
1: Yeah. You know, though, you know, I really appreciate what you guys are doing and uh, you know, it just, it, they're just, again, it's, it's just been, I don't even know how to describe it, you know, just some of the, the reactions and cause in my own head, you know, I just, I was just keeping the promise. I was going to say, say what happened and, you know, when, when I'm getting like, congratulations on the book, I'm just kind of like, you know, but it it wasn't, it was, yes, it was from my perspective. It was my story, but like, you know, these things were, this was really happening. You know, I just, I just really wanted there for historical reference because there's not much about my aircraft or my mission or, or, you know, there's some books from my time period, but there's, it's a lot from, you know, the special operations side or a ground perspective, or maybe a fighter guy. It's just, it's, I just wanted to have that history there. And I, I guess I'm not really seeking, you know, anything really big out of it. I'm not financially motivated. I just really wanted to get it out there. And it's, it's just, uh, I don't know. It's just a weird feeling when someone's like, wow, you're a published author.
0: Unintentionally, but yes, I guess I am. (laughs) Um, so with everything that went down with the end of Afghanistan and the fall, um, was that like for you? Did it end up bringing back a whole bunch of bad memories? Oh, it was horrible. <laughs> so bad.
1: Uh, you know, watching, watching all of that. Yeah, it's been, it's been difficult. It's still difficult to think about, you know, I mean, just seeing, watching that advance, because a few months before it was even really hitting the news cycles, if you paid any attention to any footnotes of the news, sure, you could see, you could just look at a map. And you just started to watch the Taliban just doing this towards Kabul. I mean, and I was like, that place is going to be, it's not going to make it. It, It's going to be over by the end of the year. And then sure enough, when we just pulled out like that, I was like, oh, it's going to make it maybe a month. And then it didn't even make it that far.
0: (laughs) So it's just, it was fast. Did you call a lot of your other buddies from Afghanistan and sort of share some thoughts together or? I did. I talked to a
1: couple, some that had helped me, you know, cause writing the book was, there was, there was times, you know, it was so upsetting that yes. And, you know, I needed to talk to somebody because I would be reliving something. And, you know, for most everybody else, it's just, you know, it's the 2016 on a Tuesday, what are you upset for? <laughs> but, but, you know, in my mind, I had just relived, you know, this really, really bad event where, you know, people died, like things were going on. So there, there was a few people throughout this process that I, that I have kept in pretty close contact with and they've been, they've been outstanding, you know, it's, it's good to be able to call a buddy and, you know, I love it when a buddy calls me and you know, if someone's having a rough go of something, I'm like, yeah, you know, I'll talk to you. Cause it's, it's more tragic to me. What's happening in the veteran community, just how many people are just taking their own life every single day over this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that those, those statistics are also extremely upsetting. Uh, so, and I bet that the fall of Afghanistan did not help those figures. So, you know, I just, I don't know. I'm yeah. I, I encourage anybody, you know, talk, talk to your buddies. As, uh,
0: as you look back on it, I know you said that the times when you couldn't pull the trigger, where you couldn't engage were the ones that stick with you most. Um, yeah. Are those still troublesome to this day? I mean, are those things sort of haunt you more than some of the other times where you were? I'd say, yeah. Cause I mean, you know, when you got to let an IED in place or go, you
1: know, there's, there's a guy digging in the road, he's laying an IED. I know it's an IED and there's nothing around. There's no reason not to kill this guy right now, put an end to this because he's going to blow somebody's legs off or worse, kill everybody. And so when we would get, For some technical reason, some technicality, uh, nope, you're not, you can't engage. We had this very, very long list written by lawyers of of the criteria of the gates that we had to go through. And if one of those wasn't met, then the whole thing was off. And that was always very frustrating to watch that dude just calmly be bad and then disappear into a compound. Because you know he's going to go inside, drink some tea and high five his buddies and get to do it again.
0: Yeah. I just, I I wonder where you are right now, mentally with everything. Uh, You know, you said you have a good network of friends and everybody else that you talk to. Um, Mm -hmm. Where is your compass, so to speak?
1: I think it's just moving forward. You know, I think getting, getting the story out there was like a cathartic thing for me. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I feel like, I feel like I'm moving forward as well as I should expect to. Uh, And I think that the, getting just knowing I put the story out there for others to read. That's, that's kind of a big relief for me personally. So I think that's kind of what helps me is, you know, I, not only am I talking to buddies, but I'm like, pick this up, read it. This is what happened. And right. in a lot of cases, you know, that's, that's been great. You know, anybody who's asked me, Hey, you know, I, I know you were in Afghanistan. What, what do you think about the fall of Afghanistan? I'm like, you'll read this and you'll know
0: exactly where I stand. And and that's been kind of helpful as well. That's awesome. Um, have you found that a lot of your, your, your buddies have, have related to the book in that way and have used it as a source for them? I think so. You
1: know, I think a lot of people. Uh, some of the comments I got back was, you know, oh wow, you know, I completely forgot about you know X, Y, Z, or you know, some of the funny stuff that's in there that that right. they had, you know, forgotten about too. So I mean, you know, there's the good, bad, and ugly in there, and and I've had comments on on all of it, you know, basically, and uh, yeah, even some of the more difficult stuff. You know, it I I hope it's helpful. I hope it doesn't just dredge up demons and not not help sure. somebody, but.
0: What do you miss the most about the military?
1: That camaraderie, that squadron, you know, our, our troop was, you know, in, in cavalry terms, we say troop and squadron. It's basically a company and a platoon. So, right. you know, being, being in, you know, that kind of, uh, you know, that company, that smaller element, uh, we were a pretty tight knit group. You know, we went to each other's, you know, houses for potlucks and the the wives all got together and they were, it, it's, it's almost like when you watch The Sopranos, and they all go in the living room, and you know everybody's hey, and all the wives are hanging out, and all the dudes are outside barbecuing. Yeah. But like, there's that, you know, and and that doesn't really exist in that manner. I haven't found that yet since I've gotten out of the army. Uh, you know, I have not to that degree. And and there's been other veteran organizations that maybe I've looked at or tried, but in in a lot of cases, not many of our generation belong to those organizations. There's a lot of Vietnam guys there. There's like a lot of dudes from the eighties that may have gotten like medically retired or something. So I, I don't really relate to as many of the people that, that I've even attempted to try and replicate that with.
0: Uh, more difficult, a regular plane or a Kiowa helicopter.
1: I mean, the Kiowa I wouldn't call it difficult because it becomes like an extension of your body. It's, it's so small and nimble and maneuverable and fun that you, you literally – it was like you put it on.
0: <laughs> I mean, it, it, felt, it just felt so natural. It's the equivalent of driving a Volkswagen Beetle to an 18-wheeler? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Okay. All right. There you go. That, that, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. Most interesting regular pilot story that you have?
1: None of them are interesting.
0: Really? Um, like no, nobody's, yeah. nobody's gone nuts on your flight or anything or no emergency. Oh, yeah. landing. nobody, nobody, nobody had a medical emergency. You yeah. had to land. Nothing yeah. Like yeah, that. We
1: get, we get those. I, I, I had a, I had a pretty drunk chick who just took a face plant in the, uh, in the aisle and went nice. to sleep. And we thought, we thought she might be dead or something. The flight attendant's calling up. Oh my God. She's in the aisle. Like, Is she breathing? <laughs> you know, I don't know. Can you go check? <laughs> Do We crazy. need to land elsewhere. Can you wake her up? But right. no. Okay. I guess we're going to divert then <laughs> Wow. That ended sucks. up. She was just really hammered. So yeah, we ended up, uh, uh, some, I don't even we like Washington Dulles. <laughs> Can somebody please get her out of here.
0: Again, like you said, nowhere, nowhere near as exciting, uh, as, no. as the life you led as a, a, a Kiowa, uh, pilot. So <laughs> Uh, no. Listen, we, we we all have changes in life to endure, right? But again, right. the uh, the title of the book is called Scouts Out. You can get it at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Apple Books, wherever you you get all of your books. We'll certainly link it to our website on hazardground.com. dot com, and I'll let everybody know where to get it. But it's been a it's been great talking to you, brother. I mean, it's a, it's an incredible story, and you know the details of everything that you put into your book um, are are what people are going to cling to, right? That like that's what people are going to be able to understand and relate to better, and. I think you do a great job at sort of translating through all the military jargon and just giving people some simple facts that they probably wouldn't know. I pretty yeah, that was that was one of the biggest motivations as I was
1: writing it, is I wanted it to be able like I wanted someone to be able to read it with no military background whatsoever, even if their their own parents hadn't been in just, just zero experience with anything military. That's I think what took me so long also to write it, was to pull that jargon out and and try and write it as plainly as possible not to really dumb it down but just make it understandable and and that you know as you know translating army and then especially aviation and army together
0: <laughs> takes yeah a while. well even I struggle at that I mean uh, part of my job here is to translate uh, military for the civilian listeners but yeah some of the pilot stuff goes way over my head I, I wasn't smart enough tall enough good looking enough or had a better not good enough eyesight to be a pilot so they left me out Well, I I appreciate your podcast. I think this is great. And thank you so much for having me on. No, we appreciate it. Again, check out scoutsoutbook.com. You can also learn more about Ryan there. And there's links to the book there as well. More pictures. You had a great photo gallery on your website. You know, you you look at that photo gallery and you start to think, like, is that really Afghanistan? Yeah, it is. I mean, some of that stuff doesn't look like Afghanistan, but it is. Right. Yeah, the, I mean the Hindu Kush mountains are beautiful. You know, big yeah. snow
1: cap, gigantic. And you know, we used to say it all the time. We're like, you know, it's really a shame. There's just so many
0: assholes here. This would be like a great place to visit. Just- <laughs> yeah, I thought that about Baghdad too. And then I realized I didn't need to go back when they sent me back. I'm like, yeah, this place still sucks. So yeah. um, I'll, I'll pass on the return unless there's some you know uh, really viable reason to go there. Unless it's gotten any better right. since the last time I was there, but I doubt it has. So unlikely. Yeah, unlikely. Right? Uh, if and only if. Well, look, man, it's been great talking to you again. I wish you nothing but the best of luck. You stay in touch with us here uh, at the Hazard Ground. And we'll certainly uh, uh, continue to promote the book and and anything else you have going on. We appreciate it, brother. Great. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right, Ryan. Thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thank you. You've been listening to Kill
1: Cliff's Hazard Ground podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno.
0: If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email A producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show,
1: don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.